This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Well, this morning we're going to finish a nine-week series that we've been on called Questions. And we started with this, this, this entire series with this thought and idea that the world is asking some very difficult questions that are hard to answer. And we know that the answers or the truth to these questions have a great impact and bearing upon people's lives. And there's a lot of lies out there as well. Even in Ephesians, it says that uh, we've been tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and by the, the trickery of men. And so there's, there's lots of options and thoughts to people's questions. And we know that the truth or the lie, as it's applied to your life, has a profound impact on the rest of your life and life afterwards. So we thought, hey, let's talk about these life-impacting questions and let's put them on the table and let's help everybody understand what does God actually think about these questions? What would actually be the truth that would help us to solidify and to strengthen the truth that's in us? And the reality is, is that every single one of us, we, we ask questions all the time. Ever since you were born and could talk up until now, you have questions about things. Some of them little, some of them significant. And so we ask questions because we're searching for stability. We're searching for truth. We're searching for something that will fill a void in us that maybe is creating some tension or maybe some, some uncertainties or pressure or anxiety or worry or whatever it might be. And if we could only get truth to fill that hole we might just feel a little bit better about ourselves and about life. And so we started off on this journey to try to find some answers that will help not only people that are searching for truth, but you as the church. And as people are asking you these questions, you can say, hey, got a great, great selection for you here, a great answer for you. Here's some thoughts to think about that you can help them as well. If you haven't had a chance to listen to all of the questions, we've done actually eight so far the night this morning. I just want to encourage you again, we've gone to a great deal of effort to put together on our website all of the videos for all of the weeks. You can click on the resource tab. There's blog posts, additional information, additional videos, book recommendations, different things that will help you to really dive into these important subjects. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that. This morning, we're going to answer our final question. And the question we're going to talk about today is, what really happens to me when I die? It's, it's one of those difficult questions to answer for a variety of reasons. Number one is that we don't have any natural, tangible evidence that shows us that afterlife even exists. I mean, years ago, we sent people to the moon and they brought back moon dust and rocks. No one's gone to heaven and said, hey, check out this piece of street of gold. I mean, we don't have jasmines from the walls of heaven or a pot of water taken out of one of the rivers up there. I mean, we have eyewitness accounts of people that maybe saw a light at the end of the tunnel, even the most current book that's out right now, Heaven's for Real in the movie. Tens of millions of people are reading it about this little boy's account of going to heaven and coming back. So there might be testimony. 
There might even be the word of God, but we don't have tangible proof in front of us, which makes it a real challenge. Secondly is the options about the afterlife. Some of them are pretty unpopular. When we start talking about hell, it's not like one of those exciting topics. You know, saying, hey, how you doing today? You want to talk about hell? It's not like, oh yeah, please, let's get a cup of coffee. I mean, it's not a very popular subject when you start thinking about some of the options. But here's one reason why this is such an important question for everybody that can hear my voice. It's because you're gonna die. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? I mean, we all get to die. No matter who you are, no matter how long you've lived, whether you're even Methuselah who lived 969 years, he still died. So we're all gonna die. And there's something in us, in, we have this, this uncertainty in us about that that it actually plagues every single one of us. It's something that we think about. At minimum, we're intrigued about this idea about the afterlife. What happens when it's all said and done? And this is important to understand because what you perceive happens to you in the afterlife greatly dictates how you live in this life. Furthermore, the challenge is once you get to where you perceive you're going, it's too late to change your mind because you can only make the decision in this life for the afterlife. And when you get there, most religions would say, too late. What you believed is what you get stuck with. That's a tough thought. And so when you think about this idea, it's not just something that permeates the 21st century in our culture. I mean, it can go clear back to the beginning of time. Every civilization, all cultures have embraced this idea about the afterlife. You go back and we look at the Egyptians, for instance. They used to build these huge pyramids and they would mummify bodies and mark the bodies and they would put all of these markings on side of, or inside of the, the, the uh, pyramid because they were actually... Um, trying to help those bodies that died through the dangers of the afterlife. They all tell a story. It's not just cute artwork where they were sad and drew little pictures of mommy and daddy in the tomb. They were actually creating different kinds of symbols that either detoured demonic spirits or directed angelic spirits to help these bodies through the afterlife. The idea that you died and you were dead didn't even hardly exist with the Egyptians. Or you think about the Aborigines in Papua New Guinea, and what they would do is they would stick their bodies up on these large platforms, and they would leave them there so that the birds and insects would clean all of the flesh and actually literally eat the body because they felt if you put the body down in the ground that the underworld spirits would come and steal the bodies. So they have this concept about afterlife as well. Or you think more currently about the group called Heaven's Gates. Back in 1997, uh, one of its founders uh, had taken this idea about them being aliens and put it into the people. And he, he got every single one of them to commit this mass suicide. Simply because they believed that they were aliens and the comet Hale-Bopp was coming and behind the comet was a spaceship that was gonna pop out all of a sudden and pick them up and take them away. 
So they had to prepare themselves and they all lined up and they had matching tennis shoes, if you remember that. They had a concept about the afterlife. So regardless of what culture or what time that you live in, you find that humanity seems to be intrigued with this idea. What really, 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 really happens to me when I die? 96% of society today would say this, there's an afterlife. Only 4% say when you're dead, you're dead. And this has been a trend throughout the history of humanity. Seven billion people can't be wrong. Maybe there's something that God did put in us to think about something with the afterlife. But if you take all of the hundreds of options, depending on the world, religion, or the cult, and what they believe, you can put most all of them into four major categories. In, in other words, probably up to 95% of all religions would fall into one of these four categories. The first category is this, that you will cease to exist. There's a belief system out there that says, when you die, you're dead. Atheists, agnostics, which make up about 4% of the population, would adhere to this kind of idea. Richard Hawkins, one of their greatest spokespersons for the atheist movement, he basically says, religion teaches the dangerous nonsense that death is not the end. So there's some people out there that actually believe that kind of thought. When you take it one step further, there's another group that would actually believe in reincarnation. There's actually 30% of all people on planet Earth today believe in reincarnation. And it's the belief that the soul actually goes on or comes back to the Earth after the body dies. And it comes back and it, it puts itself into another body or another person an animal, an insect, an object. You can come back as a tree or a flea or a bee. You can come back as a prince or a pauper. You, and, and how you live this life determines what the next life is. If you're good or gooder in this life, you get to be better in this life. And if you do something bad, you get to be less in this life. Unfortunately, no one tells you about what you did in the past life. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But so much so is this belief system that people are willing to literally starve to death. When you think about what's going on in India today and the poverty of millions of people starving to death in this country, do you know that in India, because of the large belief of reincarnation, that there's actually enough meat to feed the entire country of India for the next five years? but they won't eat the meat because it might be a relative or a loved one. That might be Cousin Eddie right there. It might be Uncle Willie or Aunt Mabel. And so they literally won't kill the cow and eat it for food simply because it might be a relative. When you look at Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Jainism and a lot of New Age thinking, they're just believing the fact that I get multiple chances so I'm going to go to the next life and I'll do a little bit better. And this continual process of death and birth will happen forever. It's another thought. The third thought, one I kind of like, is this idea about heaven. And it's the belief that God created and reserved a glorious eternal place for a select group of people. And I have some doors here on the stage. When I think of heaven, it's the door I want to go through because it's just so amazing. Oh, 
Come on. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's just this wonderful sound, right? I just like that. I mean, one more time. Come on, just why not? It's just, it's just, how can we not want it? It's, it's so glorious. It's so angelic. It's filled with so much peace and joy and no sickness. And you think all about what heaven is about. The Bible tells us that this is a place where you can go. In fact, 80% of Americans actually think they're going to go through this door. Reality is, not as many that actually think they're going that way will. If you want to find out why, talk about last week. Listen to that message. We talked about that a great deal. And then the fourth way is this, this concept of hell. The Bible calls it this eternal place of darkness and torment. It's been created for those, listen to me, who choose to live a life separate from God. And when I think about it, I don't want to go here. Why are some of you moving your head? You're going, oh, yeah. Right? It's bad. Here's the unfortunate part. Some of us moving our head, oh, yeah. I mean, society has done such an amazing job to reduce the severity or to completely eliminate the severity of what hell really is. Actually glamorize it. We sing about it. All of the pop stars that are trying to change culture make it this great place. Bruno Mars sings about it. About getting locked out of heaven, that sex is paradise. And I mean, hello, wake up, call Bruno. It's not like that. And so you see, we've, we've got these four options. Cease to exist, reincarnation, heaven, hell. But if we're truthful and we really want to dissect what really exists, if we're going to answer the question, what really happens to me, we better put the real truth in front of us and recognize that the Bible says there's only two options. There's not four, there's not a hundred, there's two options. And again, we set a foundation weeks ago, week number two, is the Bible real? And we, we proved to the best of our ability that the Bible is 100% infallible. So I'm basing today's comment upon the fact that we believe that the Bible's true. Therefore, if the Bible does say that there's a heaven and hell, we're going to just say that it exists. And when I look at these two choices, there's a couple things that are important to understand about what the Bible says. It says this, first of all, is that every single one of you are an eternal being. So this idea about dying and then you're dead is not reality. The reality is you're an eternal being. 1 John 2.25 tells us that. It says that God has promised you and me eternal life. Titus 1-2 says that it actually exists, that eternal life was promised to us even before life began. 
And I love what it says in, in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.1. It talks about that our earthen bodies or our earthly bodies will die and we'll be given these, these new bodies in heaven. There'll be eternal bodies in heaven. And then secondly, we find out not only are we eternal beings, but that we've been given these, these two options. This is so important to, to catch this morning. Listen to me. They're your choice. There's a lot of people today that said, well, if God is so loving, why would he send man to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. Man sends themselves. They choose. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in detail. In fact, if you read scripture, God wants everybody to go there. So much so he gave everything to make sure everyone had a chance. It's those that actually choose to say, I don't need God. Choose this way. And so I want to look at these two this morning. And I want to just kind of dissect them a little bit. And again, when you talk about hell and what is hell, it's the most discomforting Christian doctrine. I mean, just even get up here to talk about hell's hard simply because of what it really is. And that there's actually real people that die and go there. Some statisticians would say that every time that your heart beats, someone dies without Christ. 144,000 a day, 52,600,000 a year. It must be a big place. But when you look at the word of God, hell's defined as an actual place where people and fallen angels will dwell forever in a place of darkness and torment. The Bible actually mentions hell 53 times in the, the New King, King James Version and talks a lot about not just it as a literal place, but the adjectives to try to help us understand why we shouldn't go there. So it's not just, oh, hell's there and it's a place. It actually gives description, detailed description that might awaken us from our place of selfishness and deceit. The Bible uses the word Sheol or, or Hades to talk about hell. And in one sense, it talks about this idea of sorrow and pain. It's a place of departed spirits. And people will go to this place called the grave and they'll be held there to the final judgment where there'll be this lake of fire or hell fire. And so the Bible would use the word Sheol or Hades quite often to describe hell. It's another word, Tartarus, which actually is only used one time in the New Testament, which is the idea that it's a place for fallen angelic spirits that actually rebelled against God. You read about Lucifer and fallen angels, and there's a place specifically for them. And then it uses the word like abyss and Gehana, and there's different words that talk about the bottomless pit, and it's a place where people will be jailed or be imprisoned. But more important than how it's defined or the place that it will be, I think it's important because we're, we're answering a question this morning. What really happens to me when I die? So let's talk about one of the options. What is hell like? The Bible would use very graphic terms. It says that it's a place that's inhabited by the devil and his demons. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hang around demons. 
But in hell, it's kind of like they're your best friends. Imagine telling your kid, okay, go out, Tommy. Why don't you go next door neighbor, talk with Satan. I mean, it's going to be your forever best friend. You look at fire and brimstone as it talks about in Revelation 21.8. Total darkness in Matthew 22. But you know, Jesus takes some time. Because this is a big deal to Jesus. And he tells the story of two men that died. One went to heaven, one went to hell. And he wanted to describe what they personally experienced in hopes that we would have the revelation of what it's actually like to live like this or live like that. Jesus is saying, you can live like this, you can live like that. You can live like this, you can live like that, right? Here, here's what it says in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. It says, there was once a rich man, excuse me, expensively dressed in latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, had been dumped on his doorstep. All he lived for was to get a meal from scraps off the rich man's tables. His best friends were the dogs who came and licked his sores. Then he died, and this poor man was taken up by the angels to the lap of Abraham in heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, also died and was buried. In hell and in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap. He called out, Father Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. Imagine how tormenting, how dry, how dark, that he's not asking, I would be asking for an ice bucket challenge. I mean, I mean, he's asking for the tip of his finger to be touched in water to touch his tongue. That's his only request. That's how desperate he's saying it is. And he goes on and he says, I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you got the good things, Lazarus, the bad things. It's not like that here. In other words, the realm in which you live, American popularity material, it's not like that. There's this real heaven and real hell. And he goes on and he says, here he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all of these matters, there's a huge chasm set between us that no one can go from us to you, even if he wanted to. Nor can anyone cross over from you to us. The rich man then said, then at least let me ask you, Father, send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so he can tell them the score and warn them so that they won't end up here in this place. He said, go tell them. Please just send someone to my family. I didn't tell them. I didn't believe it. And he comes back and says, they have Moses and the prophets to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. He says, I know father, but they're not listening. Doesn't that sound a lot like American culture today? We want to denounce this, even this idea of judgment or punishment. They're not listening. 
Jesus comes along to bring love. I don't need your love. They're not listening. And he comes back and he says, if someone came back from the dead, they would change their ways. But Abraham said, listen, if they won't even listen to Moses and prophet, the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. It's not a great scripture to read. It doesn't sound like fun. When, when you start unpacking these concepts from this story and from scripture, we find out that, that hell is this place of intense, eternal pain and suffering. I mean, it's ongoing. Matthew 13 talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. It talks about incredible crying, continual torment and fear. I don't know if you've ever been afraid or scared. You go, ah! Imagine being that way forever. I mean, forever. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm trying to bring reality to the language that Jesus uses here to say, this is what it is really like. Here's one of the most significant ones that I think about. Separation from God. We take for granted how much of our world and life is held together by God. Every heartbeat that you get is another gift from him. It's his grace, his love. Our whole society is held together by the love of God. Pull that out. What's that feel like? I remember once as a young Christian, I had just become a youth pastor and we had this gentleman in our youth group. His name was Jeff. Jeff seemed to always struggle with and have some challenges with the demonic realm simply because a lot of his upbringing. And I remember one night I got a phone call. I was up in my bedroom and it's before cell phones actually existed. There was this cord to this thing. I mean, it looked real foreign. But Jeff called me and he, he started screaming. He goes, listen, there's demons in my room. You've got to help me. I'm being tormented. And he's screaming. And somewhere in my arrogance, my lack of revelation of the true spiritual realm that really exists, I said this to him, you just tell those demons to come over and see me. So I told him. He's going, okay, I'll do that. He, as soon as he hangs up the phone, there was a sense of darkness I've never experienced before and never have. It was a moment where God allowed me to see what life really was like without the abs with the absence of his presence. And I remember all of a sudden feeling this immediate panic and fear. My heart started to race. I started to have a panic attack. I fell into a fetal position. I started to cry out. I couldn't even, I couldn't even say the words Jesus on my left. Call for my wife. I asked my wife to come up. As soon as she entered the room, it was like Jesus entered the room. I mean, it just... The presence of God fell. The darkness was gone. She left again. It started all over again. And I entered into this, this, this little window that God allowed me to see that without me, it gets dark real quick. Paul talked about it all the time. Can we underestimate, not that I'm here to give any kind of credit due to the devil, but Paul did say, that you shouldn't be ignorant concerning the enemy's tactics. He said, you better be sober and vigilant, 1 Peter 5a. 
Because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. The Bible talks all through Ephesians 6 that you better put on your whole armor of God so you can even stand because fiery darts are coming your way. Imagine an entire life separated from God with no hope of escape of that coming your way. You think about this idea of no chance of peace or joy. I mean, you know, unfortunately, we lost one of the greatest comedians in recent weeks, Robin Williams. He came to this place in his life where he finally felt that ending his life was better than living his life. But see, when, and I hate to say this, but when, when you get to heaven, or, or excuse me, if you get to hell, let me put it this way, there will be no opportunity to take your life. Hopelessness, depression, fear will be your best friend. And here's the hardest part. The Bible says it's forever. Again, the enemy wants to seduce our culture to minimize the truth about that place. Society will call you barbaric, narrow-minded. You Christian people somehow would think that a good, loving God would create and send people to that place. So let's just get rid of it. I mean, let's knock it over. Let's, let's get it out of the equation. Let me, let, me just, let me just stop for a second and give you some thoughts here. Jesus came and taught more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus taught more about hell than heaven. Not because he wanted to point a finger and say, you're going to hell on a greased pole. It's not like he came in any kind of a judgment form or context. He was trying to let people know what it really was like to live a life without him so that his love would be a magnetic attraction to say, choose life, choose God, choose me. I love you. I came down from heaven. God didn't send a fall guy. Lee Majors isn't here. It's me, God, in the flesh. Jesus, I came. I brought my all, my best for you. And sometimes what happens is we, we get this, this misconception as if, like, God's to blame. And I think about this in the context of Hurricane Katrina. If you remember back in August 29th, 2005, Category 5 hurricane, one of the most epic, horrific hurricanes to hit America. 175 plus mile an hour winds devastated the entire Gulf Coast, primarily Louisiana, New Orleans. If you watch some of the news feed before that happened, all points bulletin, every news station, everything. Get out of town! 
It's gonna be bad. You're not gonna make it. This isn't like a cute little tropical storm. We're talking about complete annihilation, devastation, hide your kids, hide your wife. I mean, get out of town. And then they would show people from Louisiana go, you know, I, my best friends are Boudreaux and Tuberdeau, and I kind of was born in this kind of land. I'm going to stay in this land. I'm going to die here the way I lived here. They're going, no, go. No, going to stay. 230 people died. And I think about this, and again, not to be, not, please, please understand, I'm just trying to get the spirit of what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be calloused. Who do you blame? The hurricane or Boudreaux and Thibodeau? The guy that goes, nope, I hear the warning. It's going to be bad, but I'm going to choose to stay here anyways. Do you actually blame the hurricane when they've been adequately warned about the situation? Here's what Lee Strobel said, and he wrote a book called Case for Faith. And I, I want you to, to hear these words because I believe it's, it's the best way to perceive hell through the eyes of proper biblical thought. Lee Strobel says this, God is the most generous, loving, wonderful, attractive being in the cosmos. Can I hear an amen? amen. He made us with a free will and has made us for his purpose to relate lovingly to him and to others. And if we fail over and over again to live for the purposes why, why we were made, a purpose, by the way, which would allow us to flourish more than living any other way, then God has no other choice but to give you what you've asked for all along in your life, separation from him. He says, how's the final sentence that says, you refused to live the purpose for which you were made and the only alternate is to give you the ultimate wish for eternity, which is the consequence of living life independent of God. I don't like that option. Why would we not, knowing all that we know and all that we read about, why would we not just do this? Hallelujah. Right? Hallelujah. Come on, it just, it makes you happy. It makes you want to spin. But some people come over and they want this. I mean, come on. When I think about heaven, talked a lot about hell today, and I think we, we don't talk about that often enough in church. But when we think about heaven, it actually is a place that's created by God as an eternal dwelling place for those who choose to follow God those that submit their life to Jesus Christ and believe that Jesus died for their sins. 
And when you look at heaven, it talks about it being a place of no hunger and no thirst and no sorrow. No, it won't even know sorrow whatsoever. It's a place where nothing corrupt or stolen will be. It's a place of utter beauty. You read Revelation 21, and I mean, you're just taken back by the immense beauty. Words can't even describe what it's going to be like, although they attempt to. It's a place that will last forever. But what I like most about this, and I'm hoping that this will speak to some of you here this morning, the Bible goes into very detailed description about what it's going to be like for those who choose heaven. It says that it's going to be a place of complete, continual joy and satisfaction. Psalm 16 talks about that. I mean, Pharrell and I'm happy is like, it's like Pharrell on steroids. I mean, it's just, it's like to the 100th power, this idea that all that you know there is waking up going, I'm just happy again today. I'm full, I'm satisfied. I mean, there's no such thing as the existence of anything but joy and complete satisfaction. It's a place where no one dies anymore. Luke 26 talks about that. Remember hearing the story of Jesus stopping this man at the gate and he asks him this question. He says, well, what have you done? Just at least tell me one reason why I should let you through the door here. And the guy goes, well, there was this time where this gang was attacking this elderly lady and I kicked them in the shins. And he goes, well, when did that happen? The guy goes, ah, 40 seconds ago. Thank you, I'm glad you got that. I think that's funny, Brian. That's a funny story. How about this one? It's a place of no sickness and disease. Some of you right now, you've prayed for years. If I could just stop for a moment and dive in. For a sickness and disease. And you're saying, God, where are you in this? Why aren't you healing me? Listen, one day I promise you, you'll be healed. Whether this side of life or the afterlife, the reality is you'll be healed. I think of Jack Lohman, one of the most dearest, wonderful brothers, part of this church for 38 years, helped shape and mold this church in the way that it is. ALS took his life. Thank you, by the way, for your ice bucket challenge for Jack. What a journey! What a battle! But he's free. He's happy. He's healed. He's whole. There's no sickness. I think of Wendell. I think of Howdy. I think of my stepdad, Bob. I think of all of my friends and people that have gone on with the Lord, my grandmother and grandfather. And I think about all the sickness and disease. You're going to get there and you're going to find there is no sickness or disease forever and ever. Amen. That's awesome. How about this one? you get a perfect new body. Woo! Some of you right now, you're going, amen. For me, I'm going, well, it's kind of a little hard to do better than this baby right here, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, Mark Daniels? I mean, you look at this and go, Jesus, you can't do much better than this right here. <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. <laughs> no, I just, I like me, you know, so... You definitely not going to do better than my wife, my goodness. But listen, 
You get a new body. Wow. A heavenly body. It's a place of constant peace and rest. A place where you're going to get eternal rewards for your efforts. And most of all, you just get to be with Jesus all the time. It says there's not going to even be any need for gifts because all the gifts will be known. There's like you don't need a word of knowledge because you'll know all knowledge. You won't need wisdom because you'll be with wisdom. I mean, it's just like it'll all be there. No need for healing because everybody's better and there's Jesus in the midst of it. And it's just, why then? If we have the choice, we're answering a question today. What really happens to me when I die? Why would we choose the wrong way? Here's the kicker about this whole question. It's not a question. It's a choice. It's a choice that every person that hears my voice right now has the power to make. Jesus already died. He did everything that he needed to do to level the playing field that any person that hears my voice here, online, podcast, anywhere in the world, you simply have the choice yourself to choose this or to choose that. And the reason why God gave you a choice, because without choice, there couldn't be love. Because love is a choice. He had to give you free will so that love would exist. He simply wanted you to love him, to choose him. See, God hates hell more than anybody. People get mad. Why God? Listen, God hates hell more than anybody. When he created humanity, he set up this thing called the garden. He put Adam and Eve in this garden. He gave them everything that they needed. He promised them that they would never die, that they would have everything that they needed, that he would walk with them in eternity. It wasn't God that messed it up. Mankind said, I don't want that. I want this. Ha! And so he sees the rebellion and he sees even mankind saying, no, God, I don't want you. I want my own choice, my own will. I want to eat this. And he goes, okay, time out. Then I'll take it one step further. I'm going to leave that come down in the form of this for a bunch of selfish, selfish, self-centered people like that. And I'm going to come and I'm going to die And I'm going to pay your penalty for the thousands of sins in your life. I'm going to pay the price because I never want to be labeled as someone that sends people there. So I'm going to come and I'm going to die. And I'm going to say that whoever, all of humanity, whoever believes in me will not perish but we'll have everlasting life. Can, can, we just, can we just bring it down and make it real simple? Let me, let me give you some pastoral coaching right now. Don't choose hell. Don't choose it. 
when you say, God, I don't knew, no, God, I don't need you, this is really what you're saying. I want that. Because what he's going to say is, if that's the way you want to live, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And it amazes me because everything that we want in life, he, he willingly gives to us. Peace, you want it? Okay, here's joy, you need it. You need love, you need, you need forgiveness, you, you, need, you need provision, you need resources, you need family, you need fulfillment, belonging, acceptance. Here, dog, nah, I don't want that. He gives you everything. Not only in the afterlife, but you can have heaven on earth now. He can give you abundant life now. Don't choose hell. Choose heaven. Just choose it. What's stopping you from saying, today I choose that? What in your mind has stopped you? Where, where's the reason? You go, well, maybe when, maybe if, maybe. No. Choose heaven. That's what Lee Strobel said. He said this. He says, you know, on that day, there'll just be two kinds of people. Those that say, thy will be done. And those that said, my will be done. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Turn the question mark into an exclamation point. Finish this whole series off, everything we've been talking about, with an explanation point. Make the question a statement. I choose life. Jesus said it very clearly. I've come to give you life, life more abundantly. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? all campuses. Please just, just settle in for a, a minute or two. I won't keep you long. If you could just, just dial in for a second. Why not choose heaven for hell? I mean, when you really think about it, why, would, why not choose light for darkness? And why not choose shame, or excuse me, choose forgiveness for shame and life for death and love for hate and peace for torment? It's so important for us just to stop and realize God's done everything. He's just waiting for you. But let me ask you a question as we, as we bring this whole series to a close, this morning to a close. Wherever you're at, 217, Mill Plain, Pearl, online, ask yourself this question honestly before God. What really will happen to me when I die? Stop, pause, think about it. Do you really know? Maybe this morning you realize that you thought you were, but maybe you're not. As we talked about last week, maybe you thought that you were a good person, but good's not good enough. 
Maybe you thought, well, maybe if I just believe in God more. Listen, the devil believes in God. He's not going. Jesus makes it so clear. There's a door that's available for everyone. But they have to come to that place where they recognize that their sins have caused them to fall short of God's glory. And there's a penalty to be paid. It's called death eternal separation from those who refuse to accept the other option. The Bible is very clear that says that if we ask Christ into our heart to be our Lord and our Savior, that he'll forgive us of our sins, he'll give us a new life, a new start, and a promise of eternity with him. But it comes down to you just making that choice today. And I want to ask you, whatever campus you're on this morning, if you're here and you know today you need to make the choice, saying, I choose God today, right now. You haven't done that. I want you just to slip your hand up straight now, whoever you are. Just put it up. Come on, Mill Plain right now, 217, here in this place. Thank you for all the hands. Thank you, thank you. Come on, just lift it up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Come on, hands all over the place. Thank you. Come on, 217, Pearl, online. You just get online to the person chatting with you right now. Say, I choose God. I choose God. Anyone else? Just lift your hand. Come on. What are you waiting for? Just say, I choose you, God. I choose you today. Anyone else at all? Just give you one more chance. Thank you, buddy. Come on. Thank you. Come on, man. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just wait for many of you that there are this morning. Come on. Anyone else at all? That's awesome. Thank you in the back, you too. God bless you guys, that's awesome. Come on, 217 Mill Plain Pearl. You guys help me out. Can we all pray this prayer again? There's dozens of hands going up here again. I know at the other campuses, that's probably happening. We love to pray this prayer for those for the first time that need to pray it, as well as for us to remind ourselves of the good things that God has done in our lives. Would you pray this with me? Say, dear Jesus, Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. I confess that I'm a sinner and that I fall short of your glory. I deserve hell, but you promised me heaven. So today, I ask you into my heart to be my Lord and to be my Savior. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. And I ask these today in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Would you give Jesus one big shout? Come on, for all that he's done for you and for me. So awesome. So thankful.